0: spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein.
1: Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have had a number of programs and recordings, actually, on topics that to many people seem almost incidental or secondary to archaeology, but turn out to be very intriguing, very interesting, and have uh, generated a lot of enthusiasm in both the public and archaeological sectors of our listenership. Uh, One of the topics that we have picked and that has a tremendous amount of interest, especially in this day and age, is the question of music and archaeology. We have, in the past 20 years... Uh, Developed our methodologies and our techniques in archaeological research to the point where we can get into questions that would have seemed almost impossible to get into many many years ago, uh, say fifty years ago, when archaeology was literally a study of what you actually found on the ground and how you related it to secondary to associated fields. But the world of archaeomusicology is uh, a specialized. Field. And today we have one of the uh, major world authorities on this field, uh, Dr. Richard Dumbrell. Dumbrell is the uh, authority of the music of the ancient Near East. He is the director of the International Conference of Near Eastern Archaeomusicology at the Institute of Musical Research at the University of London. He is uh, a consultant for the Babylon Festival in Babylon, Iraq, and is a board member of Music for Syria, Dr. Dumbrell lectures in leading universities of the world and will be at Harvard and Yale in October. He has published numerous books and articles and appeared in many TV and programs and documentaries and is currently preparing a feature long documentary for television. Uh, Dr. Dumbro, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be with you today. Well, I have to say that the place in which you have concentrated your research could not be more in the news and could not be more significant uh, for the present. Uh, Obviously, the events going on in Iraq and Syria are by and large uh, staggering, uh, have worldwide implications, and so any light you can cast on the antiquity situation and specifically on the world of uh, your particular discipline would be extremely welcome. Let me ask you first how you got interested in this topic.
2: Well, it's uh, uh, by mainly reading the first articles which were published by uh, Professor Kilmer. And uh, she published the first text in 1960. When I wrote them, I I thought she she had interesting ideas about it, but I wanted to improve on this. Because the professor Kilmer was not a musicologist, and uh, being a musicologist and um, having some knowledge of Middle Eastern music, I found that the ancient cuneiform texts from which she worked, and having uh, musical indications, uh, could be uh, could be better explored. And uh, what is interesting about the ancient Aries is. Um, we, we do not have many instruments which have survived in the archaeology, but what we have is a quantity of texts, uh, cuneiform tablets uh, written in in Sumerian, in Akkadian, in Assyrian, and these texts, actually some of these texts, contain some indications about various scales how they were uh, constructed, and therefore from these we can uh, re-compose uh, scales that were practiced 4000 years ago.
1: So the cuneiform texts give you some insights, excuse me, on uh, the types of instruments that may have been played. But getting back to the archaeological record, do we have any surviving fragments or major components of any types of infra- in- instruments that might have been played at the time? That's, that's one part of my question. And secondly, have you been able to reconstruct these types of instruments with any degree of uh, certainty?
2: Yes, indeed. The, the oldest instrument that we have Uh, instruments that we have were lies which were excavated by Leonard Woolley in the late 20s. This was done with the British Museum and the University Museum of Philadelphia a joint venture and five lies were brought back. Uh, One of them is in Philadelphia, the other is in London and another one is in Iraq. Uh, So the, the one which was most interesting is the one we have at the British Museum. Uh, it is most interesting because it was entirely covered in silver plate. Therefore, uh, uh, we had an exoskeleton. We, we could uh, uh, really see what it looked like, whereas the other instruments were, uh, the wood had decayed completely. So what was left of them uh, were mosaics and a bit of gold here and there. So this instrument was brought back to the museum and was uh, exhibited uh, in uh, the 40s. And in 1949, there was, uh, uh, the summer was really hot and the wax which held bits and pieces of this lie, uh, the wax melted and the instrument collapsed. And then it was restored in the late 60s. It was finally exhibited again in 69 and at the time, there were problems in reconstruction in in objects of the in, in archaeology. We, we tended to to do them as they would have looked uh, at the time they were built, and of course, destroying in so doing all the evidence which was crucial. And therefore, when I saw this restoration, I decided that I would make a replication, which I did, and I will bring this uh, replication at Harvard and Yale in my next visit in October.
1: So you were able to reconstruct it based on, was it based on the morphology or the shape of the instrument and the cuneiform text? Did they give you any uh, technical information whatsoever that enabled you to put together, say, both the surviving material record and any documentation, or was there no documentation on the technology of it at all?
2: Uh, the instrument, to answer the first part of your question, as it was lying flat on the ground, uh, the strings which had decayed left white marks. So we could uh, see how many strings they were. And we had, of course, the tuning levers there. And uh, we knew that this instrument, the silver one, had 11 strings. That was a good beginning. Uh, then we know there was a bridge on the soundboard, which was made of, which was a silver plate. But sadly, of that period, which is about 2600 uh, uh, BCE, uh, we haven't got any cuneiform text. This was the Sumerian period. And, and sadly, of, the, of that period, we only have names of instruments, names of hymns, names of bits, and parts of musical instruments, but no uh, text of theory. So we do not know exactly how the Sumerian lie was tuned. However yeah, yeah go ahead. However we had some indications that you know, if you have a lie and the central string is, is smallest, uh, then you, you can guess that because they would have used uh, a gut string mainly from sheep, that the tension would uh, have a pr- you could calculate what might have been the tension on each of the strings. So this gives an idea of what would be the the average pitch uh, as a a string sounds at its best when it's about 80% to its breaking point. So we could have an idea of pitch. And then we had later texts dating from the old Babylonian period that is about uh, 2,000 years B.C., Uh, where we had descriptions of the tuning of instruments. And therefore, we could uh, hypothesize that uh, between 2600 and 2000, there were only 600 years, and we could guess that they might have been a bit
1: similar. Of course, and you're relatively sure. I mean, I guess based on a variety of different technologies, <coughs> that the thr- strings themselves were made out of sinews, probably from sheep or lamb or uh, related uh, related animals. Is that pretty wa- a, a pretty good assumption?
2: Well, mainly gut, and we know gut, this. Yeah, because, uh, we we have texts from the old city of Mari, Ooh. which is at the boundary of the Euphrates and the Tigris. But the far between Iraq and Syria, and at the the town of Mari, we actually uh, discovered tablets which gave precise indications that the city of of uh, Halape, that is Aleppo, which is currently uh, the scene of a dreadful war, this is right. where specialised in making gut strings, and we have tablets saying, "Please, please, uh, my lord, send me guts from Halab. The music school hasn't got enough strings." Ah, so, okay. This is very interesting. And so, for a reason which I do not understand, the city of Halep, Aleppo, was really specialized in gut strings. And, you know, a gut string is quite simple. You simply have sheep's gut. You clean the gut. It's quite smelly. You salt it for a while, and then you rinse the salt off, and then twist the gut, allow it to dry, and you have a string. But what happened in Halepo, it could have been some—I um, mean, some religious... Uh, or something special happened to these strings that might have been blessed in a way or the other. Right. Uh, and uh, that could be a reason. Although we so, have no evidence that this was the, why they were born from Haluk.
1: So you have every indication that between the third century and, or through the third century and second century BC, there was in some course. kind of a musical infrastructure. In uh, in some of these city-states, uh, I assume that the Wooly excavations recovered uh Lara from from uh, from Or?
2: Yes, these were the liras I was speaking
1: about, and they are from the 3rd millennium and, and yeah. second million, not Right, and so so it, there was possibly music schools and there was probably some kind of an organizational or infrastructural component uh, in, in the organizational fabric and social fabric that was dedicated to music.
2: Indeed, there were music schools, and we are aware of those schools. We even have the names of teachers, and we also, the city of, for the city-state of Mari, we have at, well, 4,000 years ago, even the name of girls who were trained in these schools, who ah. were the teachers, what were the instruments that they played, where the girls were sold off or given as a gift to a prince or a diplomat or something. And uh, we also have, uh, uh, we, we know from these tablets how much these girls were paid. And at that time, of course, they were not paid in coins or, or checks or credit cards. Of course, and we, yeah. Of course, we were paid in, these girls were mainly paid in fat. <laughs> and the fat, of course, they would trade fat for something else. Uh, sometimes they were given some uh, jewelry, but this was quite rare. Mainly, it was they were paid with that.
1: So there is uh, every indication that the the Sumerian, Akkadian, and Assyrian uh, lyres and and uh, musical components. Given the fact that that you you're saying that these were were girls or young women, is sort of a precursor to the muses in some ways. It's,
2: it is quite possible. It is in a certain way, but I think there were many harem girls. Ah, uh, okay. Rather than it would have been muses. The concept of the muses is uh, one which has been later explored by Plato. But, yes. Uh, we find sources in ancient Babylonian uh, um, mythology, uh, uh, numbers which might indicate that the concept of the muses Was actually created in ancient Babylon.
1: So that's where that's why I'm saying that's that's one of the indications, one of the first indications that this type of tradition, irrespective of the geography, uh, would have started over there and probably dispersed in other parts of the ancient world, ultimately leading to uh, to developments in Greece and Rome, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yes, indeed. What we know from Babylon is from. uh, Texts which date, uh, which come from Nippur, they have been excavated in 1906 by Hilprecht, also from Philadelphia, and uh, Hilprecht found four mathematical texts. The numbers there express uh, uh, are regular numbers, and uh, they are they, the multiplications. Uh, uh, equate to the numbers that Plato gave the nine muses. Most really? Indeed. But this was uh, centuries before Plato thought about it. And um, uh, most interestingly, you, there is a Yale uh, a tablet, which on, I, I wrote an article some uh, about a year ago about it, in which the nine strings of the lie... Each uh, uh, dedicated uh, to uh, um, a goddess, and so therefore we think that these goddesses anticipated the muses. So that perhaps there were goddesses, uh, and uh, and then these goddesses were mutated, had a mutation into muses with Plato
1: and other Greeks. But it, it's clearly some kind of a cultural concept that caught favor. In uh, in the Near East and spread it, it worked its way clearly westward, and Indeed. through and through a tremendous amount of time. We will take a break here and we will return with this very fascinating discussion with Dr. Richard Dumbrell uh, of the University of London about the ethnomusicology of the ancient Near East. After these words, please stay tuned. We'll be right back.
0: us on twitter at voice america trn get the lowdown on guests new shows and your favorites that's voice america trn
3: if you are interested in real estate in america's largest city or anywhere be sure to listen for good morning new york real estate with vince rocco Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: We are discussing today on Indiana Jones myth, reality, and 21st century archaeology the uh, very uh, unique and uh, significant questions of archaeomusicology, in particular with a focus on the ancient Near East, and we are going to look at its continuity, its emergence uh, uh, with with contemporary Islam. Uh, in in a few moments and and down the road but uh, as we have discussed earlier uh the um, reconstructions of some of the instruments and specifically the lars of uh the ancient near east were initially identified during the uh or at least if not initially identified, certainly given a tremendous amount of material information from the Leonard Woolley excavations in southern Iraq in the 1920s. Um, I was going to ask you, Dr. Dumbrell, based on what you've discussed so far, it seems that most of the uh, information, if not just the cuneiform Documentation, but as well uh, the uh, material cultural surviving instruments seem to be from southern Iraq. Um, do we have any information farther north in the Tigris-Euphrates of the uh, distribution of the both the material culture, both the instruments themselves, as well as the traditions that you've discussed before? Uh,
2: sadly, no. The, the problem is that most of the instruments were made uh, with wood. Um, hides, raw hide for samples and gut strings. And these uh, materials decay fast in the ground. We must remember that the Sumerians and Babylonians, uh, Akkadians, Assyrians had different funeral practices than the Egyptians. They didn't have tombs where uh, they could have instruments resting in, in, uh, in a good uh, environment. The in in Mesopotamia the tombs were simply that the bodies lay and then they covered the whole lot with with uh, the ground the soil and the pressure of the ground literally crushed everything so therefore we have very very few surviving bits and pieces from instruments all with that remains mainly is in the iconography that is etching of instruments uh, there was one bit which is quite interesting it was found in Israel. Uh, by some colleagues, and they discovered a, a bridge of an instrument, which they initially thought was a bridge from a lute. But I corrected this. I, I told them it was a bridge from a lyre, and it was made from the uh, uh, shoulder blade of a thaludia. Interestingly, really, and this is the only, uh, only up to now, bridge that has been found at all in the whole
1: of the Middle East. So, is there a connection there? Is uh, what period would that have been uh, in that chronology in the uh, in the Western Levantine uh, chronology? What period would that have been? It would
2: have been first millennium, or let's say eight hundred, nine hundred.
1: Uh, do you do you have any indications? Uh, because the I mean, obviously, the information from the material record is very very sparse. From what you've said, of any developmental changes or trends, not just in the lyre itself, but certainly in the uh, musicology of that time frame. I mean, are we seeing developments from third millennium BCE, say, uh, to the later periods running into, uh, say, other empires, et cetera?
2: Yes, it is, it is most interesting. Uh, it is my... I do believe that during the Sumerian period, because of the morphology, that is the, the shape of the instruments, uh, uh, that the music was pentatonic. That, uh, that is, we would call it an That is, a semitone is not present in the scale. It is more or less like the old Chinese scale. Aha. And this is what they would have used uh why It's because when two or three people play uh uh, uh together in the pentatonic you can never make uh, uh bad sounds with
1: it <laughs> so it's an easy way of playing collectively and uh, yes but you're, ta- you're talking basically, so far anyway, we've been talking about a single instrument. Do we have any indications that there were accompanying instruments? And what do we know specifically about the actual musicological structure of the, uh, not just the instrumentation, but of the sounds that were produced, the scales? Do we have any information along those Oh, ways?
2: yes, indeed. I mean... Um to to, um, to skip the pentatonic aspect of music, I'll go to all Babylonian, and we, uh, as I was speaking up uh, earlier, the tablets of Nippur, mathematical tablets, were strikingly important because they, they, they revealed lists of numbers uh, in sexagesimal numbers. This was base sixty mathematics, as the same system as the the clock today. Mm-hmm. Uh, are hours, minutes, and seconds. But they use this in preference prefer to any other system. And out of this base uh, mathematic- 60 arithmetical counting system, they extracted regular numbers. And these regular numbers are multiples of the size of the right angle triangle, uh, uh, avoiding all that is number seven. Uh, for interesting reasons, and this these multiples give a series of numbers which are exactly the numbers arising from natural harmonics. How the hell did they manage to understand this principle? I do not know, uh, but the fact is, is these numbers uh, um, written down on tablets 2,300 years before Christ are the numbers, the quantification, the mathematical quantification of natural harmonics that were only discovered by by researchers in the 19th century of the present era.
1: So you're saying that this connection, this very, very uh, clear but yet complex connection between mathematics... And music, which a lot of people are now talking about as a very, very major and, and logical um, connection in terms of people's orientation towards music and mathematics sort of in a duality. This kind concept was known essentially in the ancient world.
2: Yes. It, and 2300 is the starting point of this. I mean, we haven't found... Any tablets older than two thousand three hundred with these precisions, and what is most interesting is that these tablets end up with two numbers, eighty and eighty-one. Now, uh, uh, eighty and eighty-one are a ratio uh, which is which gives rise to an interval which is called the comma of Didymus, uh, which is a very important number because it can correct a Pythagorean uh, um, a third to a just third. It can also correct a lunar year to a solar year. So it was a very important ratio in the mathematical system of the, in the ancient Near East. And furthermore, this system was also known uh, as far away as the Elamite country, which is southwest Iran. Of so course. we believe that the ancient Near East had the same system from the West Levantine coast to, to Syria to the north. Uh,
1: uh, it covered a really uh, a huge area, most interestingly so this this is uh, extremely fascinating information. I guess one of the interesting questions that would uh, uh, intrigue I, I suspect a number of people is sort of the integrative role of musical development. Into uh, certainly regionally into the Near East, going through say uh, from what you're telling me, as far as we know, its its origins are essentially Sumerian. We don't know what the Akkadian. Uh, variant of this is possibly because of uh, preservation conditions and because of the surviving record. And then we get to Babylon, which is sort of integrative. And, and then uh, you had mentioned during the break that we can develop a continuity through these periods and well into uh, the tra- traditions of Islam relating, to, uh, relating and extending to the contemporary day. Why don't you give us a little bit of a uh, sort of a synopsis of of how these developments sort of converge and expanded in the greater Middle Eastern area.
2: Indeed. Well, the, the Sumerians, we have to be clear about this, are not Semitic people. The Akkadians are Semitic people. Correct. And they yeah. have adopted a bit of the, although before the Sumerians, there would have been Semitic people living there. Mainly the, the original inhabitants had been conquered by, by Sumerians. With, uh, who were not Semitic. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, Semitic people occupying the whole of the ancient Near East uh, developed different systems. As I've said before, it would have started with a, a scale similar to the Chinese-Japanese scale. Then they would have had a nine-node system uh, from which the muses derived, probably, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they would have uh, developed a, a heptatonical system, which the Greeks used later uh, in their in their music. But what is most interesting is that we have from the first millennium another tablet from which is hosted at Philadelphia, which shows uh, uh, a hepta, uh, heptagonal star with numbers and names of strings, and this dates about from 600 BC. And this is actually, uh, uh, there's a drawing of two concentric circles with these things, and I, I, I'm quite sure that this was the drawing of a device which, on which there was a circle of metal uh, rotating on another circle, and this would tell you how the different scales of the heptatonic system function. This is, this is quite extraordinary. And here we have the first evidence of, Mm. the, would say, the modern
1: musical system that we still use today. Do we have any indications that the musical systems, as you put it, and and that's probably the best way to look at it, that there was a directional uh, evolution or there was a directional diffusion, if you will, uh, going to the east, say, extending into the Gulf area, and uh, even farther afield into the Indus and possibly even to China versus uh, more direct contexts to the West and to Egypt and ultimately into the Mediterranean Basin. What uh, I know it's a very broad question, but uh, what can you tell us about that? And was Babylon itself sort of a major center uh, over the course of time that, that became the focus of a greater musical tradition?
2: Well, it is, it, is, it is certain that Babylon was the cultural city of the, the ancient world. Clear. The old city of Babylon is huge. It is enormous. I go there quite often, and I'm always amazed by, by its size, by its location, and so forth. And what is important about Babylon is that it had, uh, uh, let's say, uh, 2000 BC, it already had documents in its libraries, which already was 2,000 years old. See, uh, and so therefore, in the libraries of Babylon, we had a, a knowledge spanning on on 3,000, uh, two thousand, three thousand, three thousand five hundred years. It's of
1: course, yes, period.
2: right. And then, mm. when the Greeks came, because this is where the Greeks went during the uh, period which was the exactly period, the Greeks came about eight hundred. They started to visit Babylon in eight hundred BC, and of course, it didn't take long for them to study the mathematical system, which they took back to Greece, and the musical system, and philosophy, and whatever. And then the music developed in Greece uh, in a different manner, a at, at, uh, totally different manner than developed in the Middle East. In the Middle East, it remained more uh, uh, orientated on specific uh, uh, groups of intervals, they had seven fifths and seven thirds, which are still in use today in the Makam tradition. Uh, although in the Makam, they use more fourths than they use fifths, because they were more they were influenced in the 9th, tenth century of the Christian era by uh, Greek systems that we can find in these intervals. The Babylonian uh, uh, trend, the Babylonian fashion, uh, amazingly. And it is highly probable that Pentatonism uh, uh, gradually came
1: to the Far East uh, from its uh, birth in the Middle East. So you could, uh, can you track it, or do we not? Is the evidence too fragmentary at this point?
2: It, it is quite difficult to track, but
1: uh, it's like with
2: linguistics. Uh, right. We, we have names of places, and from the names of places which are the, the most reliable uh, and certainly the oldest words we have in, in specific regions, we can, we can see a funnel of migration of linguistics, and we can do about the same thing with musicology. We, we have trends, And we can find more or less a path. For instance, there is the oldest musical piece which was written, ever written, was found in the city of Ugarit on the north uh, west coast of Syria. Now, the people living at Ugarit, uh, 1400 BC, were called the Hurrians. And the the Hurrians were certainly not Semites. They came from the northeast Caucasus. Mm. And... This tablet, which I have uh, translated and interpreted, it has definitely some music which has characteristics of the Northeast Caucasus. You see, so if this happens, we can find uh, this kind of uh, of, of influence uh, after the Hurrians resided for five hundred years in Ugarit, uh, means that we can trace these things quite quite precisely, and also uh-huh. we have. Uh, what is interesting is that in ancient Egypt, uh, which which gave us um, quite a good numbers of uh, real instruments, we can actually compare the theory that we have on cuneiform tablets with the analysis of the structure of ancient lutes from uh, the 18th dynasty, for instance. And on these lutes, we have the traces of the frets, and these can be calculated and they, they actually correspond to the theory of Babylon, so therefore we can see that the Babylonian trend uh, uh, was transmitted to ancient Egypt
1: uh-huh. we, will, uh, we will be back with uh, a very uh, s- intriguing discussion that we're having with Dr. Richard Dumbro of the, of the University of London on ethnomusicology and the fluorescence of music and the musical. Tradition uh, in ancient Sumer and expanding across the Middle Eastern spheres of influence right after these words. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back.
3: successful life. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from the Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m.
0: Pacific Time, Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: listening to indiana jones myth reality and 21st century archaeology with dr joseph schuldenrein to be a part of our discussion today please call 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to indiana jones myth reality at gmail.com now back to the program
1: This is Joe Schuldenrein with my special guest, Dr. Richard Dumbrell, who is a world authority on ethnomusicology and archaeology and music in the ancient Near East. A very appropriate time and place to discuss archaeology because the area as many of you know is very much in the news and uh, we'll be talking about uh, sort of contemporary connections between musicology and the islamic tradition of music as we proceed in this last uh, segment of our discussion but first i want to ask you uh, dr dumbrell about the role of babylon As sort of the nexus of cultures coming together in the ancient Near East based on culture contacts, wars, exiles, and the entire geopolitical world that existed at that particular time in this hub of civilization and this very major center of cultural activity. Can you enlighten us a little bit about where music was uh, at the time of ancient Babylon and how traditions came together and possibly dispersed from there?
2: Indeed. Well, Babylon is, is more than a city, it was more than a city. It was, it was an empire. And the Babylonian Empire at the time or another time, because there were uh, situations on the uh, on the, uh, the the surfaces it occupied. It was mainly uh, was principally occupying southern uh, Mesopotamia, up to Baghdad, and then it grew a bit to the north. It has been it has been the site of of, of quite a few uh, wars and feuds between uh, rival city states. Which were in the empire, tried to to take power, take part, such as, for instance, the well, I mean, we thought about the the, the Amorites from the city of Mari and others, and then later we had the Hittites trying to uh, create trouble and and many others. So it is certain that in in the walls of ancient Babylon, they would have had a, a, a diversity of languages spoken. Certainly, we know that Aramaic was spoken uh, in the first mi- from the first millennium BC, and of course there were the first elements of the, the, the Hebrew and which was, was starting to appear, uh, uh, and uh, of course we know about the Jewish exile in Babylon. So there was certainly a variety of music uh, uh, which followed. For instance, most interestingly, we we there's a town in, in southeastern Turkey called Mardin. And there are some monasteries, some Christmas monasteries around where we have monks, the monks still singing in Aramaic in mm-hmm. a 3,000 years old uh, um, language. We know this because we have the tablets and we know that what they sing is in the proper grammar uh, and so forth uh, of of uh, 3,000 years ago. And therefore we can presume that the music they sing is also 3,000 years old. So th- th- this is absolutely fascinating. And uh, and uh, we, of course, the, the Jews in exile would have had their own uh, forms of early which would have distinguished itself from others, etc., etc. This is why we have uh, distinct uh, uh, musics, uh, practices in synagogue today, at the mosque, and indeed in Christian monasteries. Uh, And it is quite certain that these diversities were born uh, uh, inside Babylon.
1: So, Babylon was the cauldron in which all these traditions came together and uh, where do we see the commonality? What, uh, What specific elements of the musicology do we see as sort of a common denominator for these traditions?
2: It was indeed the, the scale which is the Makam scale as practiced today in, uh, in, in, in Arab countries, uh, more or less accurately, uh, but which is best represented by uh, the Antonine University in, in the Lebanon, which follows a, a remarkable tradition. And I'm working with them on uh, the mo- most ancient forms of, of music that they play and to see, to compare them with the elements I have. Uh, and indeed, there's a continuity, uh, no doubt about it, from ancient Babylon, let's say second millennium BC Babylon, to uh, um, medieval uh, uh, music from Levantine music, uh, where to be from? From the church, from the mosque, or from the synagogue? What about connections to Egypt? Well, as I was saying, the uh, the study of the fret marks on, uh, on lutes from the Eighteenth Dynasty and other dynasties, which we can calculate mathematically, uh, can be equated to the musical systems that existed in the Middle East. So therefore, we can uh, be quite certain that the music of ancient Egypt uh, uh, during the period of 18th dynasty would have sounded very much like what it sounds today, amazingly
1: yeah one one of the the questions I have is certainly the depictions of music in ancient in ancient times and certainly for this part of the world we had talked about it earlier and you had mentioned it and we spent some time with this is uh the singular role of the lyre in 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 uh in Near Eastern music, and if you bring to mind uh, even 16th, 15th, 18th century depictions of uh, the biblical traditions, that's the instrument you see. And you emphasized it as well. Do we know about any other instruments that were characteristic or significant in the, uh, let's call it the orchestra or the uh, groups that played at that time? say, 3rd to 2nd millennium BC.
2: Indeed, the harp. The harp was a very, very important instrument. Uh, and we we find harps very early in the Sumerian period. It was a, a little... It came directly from the hunter's bow. Uh, it had one string to start with, and then they added strings, they added a resonator, and it ended up as being a, a more complex instrument, uh, as we find uh, from the country of Elam, uh, copied by the Assyrians in the first millennium.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and uh, I have made a reconstruction with one of my uh, another one of my students of on one of these in most interesting harps. And it is really in the first millennium that these are, are really good-sounding instruments. I mean, a similar lie is a bit like, um, like a very primitive-sounding thing. There's no doubt about it. They did not know much about all these these laws of acoustics and so forth. Of course. In the first millennium, when when we we built this harp from the iconography, uh, we didn't know what would happen. And when we we started to play it, it was remarkably interesting. We really had a good musical instrument, uh, which could be tuned very finely, uh, and which was able to to play the most remarkable melodies. And, you know, let's not be uh, fooled by the fact that this is music which is 3,000, 4,000 years old. Uh, the musicians uh, all that long ago were as good as we are today, perhaps even more. They had the same dexterity, uh, the same virtuosity. So, therefore, let's not think that their music was primitive. It would have been extremely complex and extremely clever, and extremely brilliant. And well, indeed,
1: the, yes? Speaking of that, and, and I was going to segue into this, Um, it seems to me that there would have been sophisticated accompanying accompanists. Uh, For example, what comes to mind is drumming uh, to maintain rhythms and to keep an accompaniment going. And certainly these sort of complexities of harmonics and those uh, types of convergences that would create sort of an ensemble effect, if you will. What do we know about drumming? What do we know about rhythm? And that sort of thing.
2: Drumming was a very important, and it was really a temple thing. Uh, we know that they had very large drums, uh, whether kettle drums, huge kettle drums, and huge frame drums, which would have been about uh, two meters high, uh, uh, and which we know, what, we have the description, again from the archives of Maori, stating that they needed the hides of five cows to fit the head of one of these Frem drums, quite mm. incredibly. And that these drums were extremely heavy, and they were transported on special uh, 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 contraptions, which needed 30 soldiers to carry them from Mari
1: to Aleppo <laughs> 4,000 years ago. Uh, right. Easy. One would uh, think that uh, that drums in particular would have had a survivability quotient if you will that would be relatively good because you would stretch the hide on top of a of a, a pottery vessel i'm assuming that wouldn't necessarily be made of wood that would be as perishable say than as as pottery do we have any information on that
2: well yes we have a a, a lot of information again from mari and we know we ha- we have a detailed list of the bits that were used to build uh, one of these frame drums, on these big frame drums, which I think was called the alum, mm-hmm.
3: uh,
2: and uh, although I have no proof for it, uh, uh, this instrument, by the way, is still used in Shiite uh, uh, religious ceremonies in southern Iraq. But of course, it's modern, made of steel with a huge plastic. Of course. Uh, but well, that, <laughs> yes.
1: Go ahead, please.
2: Yes, and, and these instruments would have sounded, I mean, like thunder. We have, we have texts in which it say that it sounds like thunder, of course. Uh, and then we, we had the kettle drums. But mostly in court music, it was not these big drums that were used. They were more the type of the uh, small North African darabuka drum. So we have a di- distinction between percussion in the temple and percussion at the court. Then many other instruments were used, such as sistra, used in religious ceremonies and also in court ceremonies. And then you had a a number of clay rattles that were used for for both uh, court uh, and other ceremonies. But there is something I want to underline there, that there would have been temple and court music which was, uh, let's say, clever music, uh, with the theory of numbers that I discussed before, but I'm quite sure also that there would have been a popular music um, which did not respond to these rules. And sadly, about these scales, we know absolutely nothing. Um, a shepherd alone or a juggler in the streets of Babylon or elsewhere would would not have been aware of these complexities and would have played whatever he wanted. So there would have been different other styles alongside the sacred and the court type of music.
1: What about the connections to contemporary Islam? Let's let's uh, jump over a few hundred uh, years, certainly, and possibly even a millennium. Uh, getting into Islam, eighth um, century A.D. and subsequent. How do we bridge this? How do we make that connection to contemporary Islamic sounds, uh, irrespective of the obvious uh, divergences within the Islamic traditions? But how do we make the connection between? What we're seeing, say, in Babylon and, and uh, leading all the way up to the Islamic traditions?
2: There are two tablets. Uh, one uh, in the Museum of Baghdad, uh, which was at the British Museum, and another tablet, which is also in Philadelphia, which describe the musical systems uh, of the old Babylonian period, that is 4,000 years old music. Mm-hmm. also have a, a tablet describing, giving the intervals. Uh, giving seven intervals of uh, the value of a fifth and seven intervals of the value of a third. And each of these intervals is different from the other ones. And therefore, this is completely similar to the maqam tradition which started with the Islamic period and probably perhaps a bit before. So Mm -hmm. this is... uh, 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 the Islamic system I wouldn't call it Islamic system but the Middle Eastern system right. is, is, is composed of filled intervals uh, while the Greek system what well, the Greeks did and they took empty intervals uh, to create scales so these are uh, although the two systems come from the same root they, they end up to be different uh, uh, in their development because of the development and today, uh, uh, the makam system uh, uh, has increased slightly certain notes to create more modal uh, um, uh, sounds within. But it is uh, probably these were um, these these modulation, these uh, different tunings. Were, were they, they could not notate them, so therefore they probably uh, were given in their uh, in the name they bore. So, uh, certainly, there would have been some tone bending in Babylon, which they could not have written down with numbers, but which were um, um, inferred in the name of the intervals given. And these intervals have strange names that, for us, make absolutely no sense today. And I hope that at some point in in, in discoveries that uh, we we will be able to find uh, um, lexical texts with equivalents. Uh, indic- giving more indication as to the meaning of these intervals, of the names mm-hmm. of these intervals. But they are in all ways similar to the makam, to the ajnas of the makam system.
1: We only have two minutes left, actually a minute left. What can you tell us about what are the, going to be the new frontiers in ethnomusicology of Near Eastern music? music and uh, where are we going with the methodological advances in these studies?
2: We are now uh, having a specialty which is recognized, which is called archaeomusicology, which you call ethnomusicology. Well, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, 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 we we having now a, a precise methodology 50 years ago we didn't know where we were going now we know where we are going we, we have our techniques and simply what we, we need to find is more tablets with some um, musical text which will help us develop further our knowledge but up to now I think with what we've got we're pretty uh, sure about what was happening uh, 4 or 5 thousand years ago
1: And with that, we're bringing our program to a conclusion. I want to express my thanks to Dr. Richard Dumbrell for enlightening us on the... uh archaeomusicology of the ancient Near East and uh, appreciate your presence on the program. It's been extremely enlightening and very timely in this day and age when, as, uh, as everybody knows, the ancient Near East, specifically Iraq and Syria, are so much in the news and the antiquity of those magnificent cultures is something that we should not forget as we progress and, and try to solve the uh, pressing problems of today. Thank you very much, Dr. Dumbrell, for appearing on the program.
2: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on
1: your program. Okay, and we will see you, we will uh, talk to you all again next week. Thank you very much and good evening.
2: Thanks
0: again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.